<laughs> you never know. It's no timing. <laughs> so let's say if there's a if the a requirement that mind presents becomes your requirement, then to you that requirement will have an effect. Yes. So it can make what's everywhere not around. You see. It's your belief, like in the old days in the New Testament, Jesus they would, you know, Jesus would perform supposedly miracles, and he would put his hand on someone and he would heal them. And every time they would start saying, "Hey, you are a great healer," he would always redirect them and say, "It's done according to your belief." Yes. So that person or persons were open to the possibility, and because they were open to the possibility, it could occur. But if they weren't open to the possibility, it had nothing to do with that Jesus, quote-unquote, had the potential to heal, there would be no healing. Because the belief that they can't be healed would probably be sufficient to block that off. Yes? So the idea of, for me, over the years of being in recovery, I had different ideas about the higher power, but the one I last settled on when I when people would ask me what my idea of a higher power is, and that I had for years is that it's always available at all times right where I am with no requirement necessary to meet it. Yes? So in other words, if the requirements that are yours are dropped, you're actually dropping what we were talking about yesterday playing God, with God. And so you drop the requirements and then God will reveal, I don't, we're using the word God, it's, I don't like that word, but it fits in with the jargon of AA, you can call it Buddha nature, or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter what you call it, but let's just say there's a juice or an energy that's available, yes, always, at all times. When that, when the requirements are dropped, and it doesn't matter if requirements get presented, as long as they don't become yours, as long as there's not an identification with them, they don't have any ability to, to blind you from the obvious. Yeah? Once that is seen, then the sense of it being always available at all times with no requirement necessary immediately cuts off the plain God of the conditioned mind. It now isn't based on you. It's not based on a certain locale. It's not even based on your condition. It has no basis whatsoever. It's just available. Yeah. And if the, if the head can start entertaining it, then it becomes always so for you 24-7. It's always so, but it doesn't matter if you have a belief that it's always so. You like it to actualize where you are, so it has to, in a sense, become always so for you. And the only way I found it becomes always so for you is when you're not that you. Yeah? The you is being presented, but you're not that, that allows it to always be, always available at all times for you. And so it now translates. It doesn't just stay up here with something you think you know, which has no effect on your day-to-day living, but it translates in how you travel here. And I, my belief in what's happened with me and people I've seen in, entertain this idea is it doesn't change the geography that your life has in store. Yeah? Jobs, no jobs, cancer, no cancer, this and that, that and this. It doesn't have a say in that. But it will allow you, or allow, I don't like to use the word you, but it will allow a traveling lighter to occur. Yeah, A traveling lighter. And the, the weird thing is, because we're so 
identified with this system of which is conceptualizing. So a sense of okayness is held as something, yes? I have okayness, as if you went to the store and bought some. But a sense of okayness is how you travel, and your mind no, won't even notice it. It'll take maybe months for you to start getting a clue, just like it says in recovery in the spiritual appendix. It says, you probably won't even know what's happening to you, but people around you will recognize that something's going on. Because the mind isn't trained to pick up a holistic... It's, it's, it's there to pick particulars up, yes? When, you know, words, if you saw a blackboard and there was one dot on it, a one dot of chalk, your mind would go to the one dot. It wouldn't just have an open screen and see the blackboard. It would see the one thing appearing on it. That's the way the mind is, yes? So it doesn't get a sense of, of feeling in a holistic way. You don't pick it up. And it's really actually cool it doesn't pick it up, because if it did, it would claim it. It would say, oh, I'm feeling really great. And I bet you then the really great feeling would come and go. <laughs> because as soon as you play God, you play, you're like an AC-DC God. You're like a this and a that God. It's not just a constant state. It's always high and low, close and far, yes and no. I feel great, I feel terrible. You know how sometimes you have such an epiphany and the next day you're depressed, yeah? And boom, it's all in, explode, implode, explode, implode. This isn't about that. Yeah? This is about like the base the, the the bottom baseline, which for us with untreated alcoholism is irritability, restlessness, and discontentment. Yes? Even if your mind is managing it well by avoiding it and disassociation, it's not changing the fact of its influence on the way you're living. No freaking way. Just like I remember people come in here and they honestly feel they don't have any resentments and they're the angriest people you've ever seen. Yeah? But their mind has managed it so to the point where they don't believe that they're angry. Yeah? That's not getting rid of the anger. Yeah? That's actually a failed solution to the anger. Because the anger actually gets bigger and has more influence over you when you don't know it than when you realize it. It may be uncomfortable when you realize it, but then there's a possibility of recovery from it. But when you don't know it, it just, it just tints your whole life. Yeah? So here the baseline with untreated alcoholism is that irritability, restlessness, and discontentment. And what occurs is when the reliance on self is seen to be not reliable, and then the center of that system, which is identification as self, is entertained, I may not possibly be that, a shift occurs to relying on something greater than self. Yeah? So the baseline of irritability, restlessness, and discontent, with some peaks of feeling okay, gets switched, and now the baseline is you're basically okay, and every once in a while there's flare-ups. Yes? But the, basic, the baseline has shifted. That's such a nice thing. Really, really nice. Because then you don't have to... You know, there's a real joy to go through the experience of surrender, but sometimes it's really dangerous to get there, yeah? Like when you forget that you're powerless and you start thinking you got some juice and then you get loaded and this and that and the shit hits the fan and you get to that point of it dawns on you, I'm fucked, and then there's a surrender, you may not get to that point, yeah? I've seen a lot of people who left here, AA, with a lot of time and they believed that AA was going to be the same when they came back and it was, but they weren't the same. Yeah, the, the obsession to use had been lifted, now it was back, 
they loved meetings, now they didn't like meetings. And man, I've seen them struggle for 15 years from that point. 15 years of coming in and out, coming in and out, coming in and out. So the idea of surrender is really, really cool. It's like the highest experience, I think, in AA. But to stay surrendered is so much cooler. Yeah? To be convinced that any life run on self-will won't be successful. To be convinced that self is what has defeated us. To be convinced that God could do for us what we can't do for ourselves. To be convinced of that, to know with certainty that that's so, produces a state of surrender. Yeah? It's not as dramatic when you go into the experience of forgetting and then hopefully surrendering again. That's sort of a high dramatic experience. But it's really a lot nicer when you just stay surrendered. You have an understanding... Yes, you have a life built around you by following the AA principles, the fellowship and all like this, and it's a perfect foundation for this freedom to grow. And it's so beautiful. And uh, a lot of people say there's nothing to do with long-term sobriety. It has no value. Everyone, it's whoever, whatever time you woke up is the one who has the longest-term sobriety. But in one sense, some of the stuff that's running us in our lives, some of these angers and this and that, they will not rise up into awareness unless they feel safe. And if you keep going in and out and in and out and in and out, it's a great way to keep that stuff from rising, but that stuff runs you from the shadows, totally runs you. So there is a value in staying sober for a while because it creates a security and a safety, and then the stuff that your mind does not want to deal with can come up in a safe enough environment and it can be dispelled. There's like a reclaiming of your energy, yeah? And you'll feel it. That's the whole point. What I found I was missing in my life after doing the fourth and fifth step was me, in a sense. Not me as Paul. I had plenty of that. But what I really was had been forgotten. And I didn't know that was what I was missing, so I was trying to compensate by getting loaded and doing this. But nothing was satisfying. But now life, just because I'm here, is satisfying. Yeah? Just because I'm present... It has a sense of satisfaction, and that has changed everything, because really, truthfully, from my own experience, the only solution for dissatisfaction is satisfaction. Yeah? And I cannot get a mental satisfaction. I cannot get a physical satisfaction at last, but I can get a spiritual satisfaction that has constancy, yeah? that's always available at all times. So a true, a true feeling of security can rise in you. Because what you're relying on is always so. Yeah. And it doesn't have the qualities that your head has. <laughs> it's not out to fuck with you. <laughs> no. So, in the big book of AA, in the first forward, or one of the forwards, it says a statement. It says, we are a hundred men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Yes? So we are a hundred men and women who are recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. The word I like is seemingly. Yeah? Because if you look at the definition of seemingly, it's an incredible word. Because it says it appears to be true or false to you. Yes? You've got to see how much you're, at, you're participating in what you call life, your life. Because everything... Everything is being given meaning to, by you. Yeah. In other words, when you see something, 
you may see what we call a car, but the meaning your mind gives it is different than the meaning I'll probably give it. If I ever had that kind of car, I'll be given a lot more meaning than you do. Yes? So the whole world is a subjective experience. We may be, it's sort of like if you put, we were talking today around here, if we put a big, let's say, wooden horse here, yes, on the stage, and we had 20 improvisational actors come, and they would just see that horse and then act out what they thought that horse meant, yes? That's what's happening here. Every one of us, there's the horse, there's the tree, there's the car, there's the male, there's the female, but from that point on, the mind's giving it meaning, a very subjective meaning. That's why I don't know how you feel, actually. Yeah, I can't. There's feelings, and I have feelings, but I don't know how you feel because that feeling is being subjectified. Your mind is giving it meaning. Yes? So, in this statement of seemingly, when I'm in the throes of alcoholism and addiction, that seemingly is that it is a hopeless state of mind and body. By the time, bef- just before I got into recovery, I feel felt like I had surrendered to my destiny. I wasn't thinking anything was going to really change. I knew I was, I had already spent two years and three months in institutions. I was, I had died a few times, and I'd been in jail a lot. And I knew that was my destiny. I wasn't under any illusion about that. But I didn't know it could ever be different. So all I wanted to do was get high. Yeah, until the next time they arrested me or the next time I had to go to an institution. I was just, and the day it happened to me was just like a regular day at the office. I was just, I had no money. I was trying to scrounge around some money. I was drinking a bottle of Royal Gate Vodka. I don't know if you've ever seen Royal Gate Vodka here. Well, we have it back in, in the West and it's, uh, <laughs> it's like 80 cents a pint vodka. Yeah. <laughs> we call it the gate you enter at the end. The Royal Gate. It's really a cheap vodka. <laughs> I always like to joke about it because their customer clock, their customer service is great because realizing their customer base, they change from glass to plastic. <laughs> because that night, your whole life would be ruined when you dropped it. Now it just bounces back. <laughs> so I was drinking a bottle of Royal Gate. I was drinking with this guy I didn't know. I was just, I had went out four nights before and I ended up in a town two hours away from San Francisco, (laughs) washed up totally. I was waking up drunk, you know, and I was waking up dumb. I couldn't put like two sentences together. And I ended up in a trailer park near this hang gliding place in Calistoga, California. We're sitting with a guy I didn't know in a trailer drinking vodka and I was looking at him and he had a, he's a big heavyset guy and he had a big bulbous nose and varicose, varicose veins on his face, you know? And I said to myself, this guy's a bum, you know? <laughs> but, but lo and behold, I saw in his eyes that he was looking at me like I was a bum. <laughs> and I had a, that moment of clarity came over me. Yeah? It came over me. It was amazing. It was like, Something stopped, and it was like a, a pause, and then a CNN news flash happened. Just a headline, no story. The headline was, I'm screwed, yes? And I had been, I had been screwed for quite a while, but it was news to me, really. Because my muscle of denial was like Arnie Schwarzenegger's. I mean, I was keeping out a lot of evidence <laughs> you know, every day. That whole system collapsed. 
and the truth settled in that I was screwed. Yeah. So I looked at this guy, and I didn't take another drink. And I had been in a drug and alcohol program, not like this, but it's a place called Delancey Street. They have one in New York, too, but it was out in San Francisco. I had just been there for two years in this program, and I had left, and ten months later I was in this trailer park looking at this guy drinking Royal Gate vodka with no money in my pocket, nowhere to go, nothing. And um, so I went out to the phone book booth, and I called Delancey Street, and I asked if I could come back. And they'd been getting my newsletter, I think, for the last few months. And they said, no, you can't come back. You can come back in a month and have another interview, but we're not taking you in right away. We'll have to see what we want to do with you. So I called up a woman who I used to party with there in San Francisco, and I asked her if she could come and pick me up. And I sounded very humble. It was like a bottom. You know, I was shook up pretty well. And she agreed, and she drove an hour and a half from San Francisco to pick me up. In that hour and a half, I had an alcoholic, miraculous recovery. I wanted to get loaded again. <laughs> really, the moment of clarity had no effect. It just, was, it just passed away, and I was, let's get down to business. So when she, as soon as she pulled up, I got in, and I started trying to convince her, you know, to let's go buy some you know, six-pack of Talls, let's get the Coke, let's get the dirty magazines, and let's rent the hotel room, you know? And uh, I think she had followed that equation with me a few times, hadn't been that satisfying for her, you know? (laughs) So she said, no, we're not going to do that, Paul. She says, if you want a place to stay tonight, which is what I wanted, you've got to go to an AA meeting. Yeah? Now, it's so funny, because I was a perfect uh, candidate for AA, but I never heard about it or thought about it, yeah? Really. In Delancey Street, they didn't like AA, so that was never introduced to me. I had no freaking idea about the thing I probably needed the most. It's incredible how it works, huh? So I said, all right, because I wanted a place to stay. And so I went to my first meeting, 1988. And uh, when I went there, I felt something, which was hope. I hadn't felt hope in about ten months, yeah? And when I felt the hope, it allowed me to feel how hopeless I'd been for the first time. And it was really hopeless, because I just spent two years in a program. They told me that period of being Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that period of being Mr. Hyde, though rather long, was over. Now I was going to be just Dr. Jekyll from this point on. And I was hoping that they were correct, but I had the suspicion they weren't. And as soon as I left Delancey Street, Mr. Hyde showed up again. Two years, the first week I left, I felt that irritable restlessness and discontent, and I was sitting in this, the new room I just moved into, in this house with these two girls. They had rented it to Dr. Jekyll. They didn't know Mr. Hyde was moving in. And I was sitting there, and Mr. Hyde, the transformation was happening as I was sitting there. My mind started to advertise what I'd been missing for two years. It didn't tell me specifically. It was telling me like a romantic missing. Oh, those wonderful nights with all the junkies. And everything. So I believed it, and I got into my Toyota Corolla, which I had. I lost two nights later. And I drove down to that bar, a bar I used to go to, the Rose and Thistle. We called it the Nose and Sniffle back then. It was on a street called California in Polk in San Francisco. And I walked in armed with the belief that I could drink but not use drugs. I really thought there was a difference in my case, which was to be proven not to be. So, so I walked up to the bar and I ordered the first drink I had in two years. And I ordered a beer, and the guy gave it to me, and I drank it. And halfway through, the, I, and nothing happened. I felt like, hey, I have impunity. 
Let's order another beer. So I ordered the second beer. I'm drinking it halfway through the second beer. I wanted more, you know. And my idea of more, I don't know, just fill it in, whatever you think more is. But to me, more was more. And I, I saw a guy who dealt more, and I asked for more. And he gave me a very little bit of more. <laughs> and I went out to my Corolla, and I did a line of more. And uh, as soon as I did the more, it was like Jack Nicholson in that movie, The Shining. You know, ever see the movie The Shining, when Jack Nicholson breaks through the bathroom door at the end, and he goes, here's Johnny. It was just like that. I was totally possessed by the parasite. It had sort of been hovering over the host for two years while it was under surveillance at Delancey Street. But as soon as I got out from beneath the ceiling of Delancey Street, it was on me like white on rice. And I went on this ten-month run, and I ended up in this park, Calistoga. I was washed up, and I was totally, completely, incomprehensibly demoralized. I went to college in Delancey Street. I became a graphic artist. They had kept telling me that period of your life was over. Everything's going to be nice from now on. You know what a good life is, and you won't want to lose it. Fuck that. Jesus Christ. That absolutely had no effect on me. Not one bit. It was like, it was like a paper mache fence. The parasite in a tank just ran right over it. Jesus Christ. I was like, wow. If, it could have been 10 years, it wouldn't have mattered. I could have been institutionalized for 20 years, it wouldn't have mattered. The thing can wait. It's unbelievable. So then I showed up at this meeting. And, they, and I felt this hope, and I could feel the hopelessness of the situation I was in. And so I, um, from that point on, the funny thing is, the miracle, one of the miracles of AA happened that night while I was asleep. Yeah? And most of the, the events of recovery for me have been passive, actually. It's, all I had to do was sit my ass in the chair quite a lot. But a lot of happened to me by just showing up at meetings and doing some of the work they offer. So I did, what occurred is, I went to the meeting, and there's a very important statement in the book, in the fear inventory. It basically describes to me the skeletal uh, diagram of a bottom. Yeah? And it says that you made decisions based out of fear that set off trains of circumstances that bring you misfortune that you don't feel you deserve. Yeah? So, I, in selfing, yes, make decisions from this distorted perception of what's going on that cause trains of circumstances to happen that bring me misfortune that I don't feel I deserve. And what happens when I have misfortune I don't feel I deserve? I get resentful. Someone's doing this to me. Yeah? And so what occurs is the resentment is, an, is a product of the same distorted view of selfing. So it just feeds into the selfing another decision based in fear more trains of circumstances, yes, more misfortunes I feel I don't deserve, and so on and so forth. So it's like the spiral activity of a bottom. Yeah? And while I'm in that, it's creating a lot of dis-ease, so I want relief. And so I get relief from doing drugs and alcohol. Against all evidence that it's not good for me, it doesn't matter, because the demand to have relief is supreme. Yeah? And I become an alcoholic of my type, which is that I am willing to pay any consequence tomorrow not to feel uncomfortable right now. And I constantly feel uncomfortable right now with untreated alcoholism. I'm irritable, restless, and discontent. 
And I don't care how much you talk to me about this and that and plans for my life of how great it would be if I just go to college. I don't have time for that. I want relief now. Yeah? I want to feel better now. I don't want to have a four-year layaway plan. It doesn't work for me. I, I want instant gratification. Yeah? When I shot up, I, didn't, I ended up shooting up in the neck. I wanted that coke to hit me in nanoseconds. I didn't want to wait even a second for it to do. And they're telling me, oh, just plan a life, Paul, and go back to school. Give me a break. <laughs> you know? so, <laughs> so here, I walked into that meeting, and what happened is that's, that whole format got broken. I made a decision based on hope that first night. They said, hey, come back. I said, okay, I hope you're right. Is this going to work? And they said, yeah, keep coming back. I said, okay, I hope you're right. And they said, sit in the front and listen to the speaker. I said, okay, I hope you're right. I'll sit here. <laughs> yeah. They said, get commitments. People who do service in recovery tend to stay sober. Okay, I'll get a commitment. Then they said, you need to get a sponsor. I said, no, I'm not willing to do that right now. <laughs> but I started to make decisions based out of hope. And to me, the second step is an observational step for me. Yeah? I see... I come to believe, I make it as, what is it? I came to believe a power greater than me can restore me to sanity because I start seeing it happen. I took the suggestions, and as I was doing the first few months of AA, I started to see that something was restoring me to sanity. It was an observational step. I don't do the step, I see it. I do the suggestions, and the aspect of the step is observing the results, which come, I come to believe, hey, yeah, something's working. Because why it's working. Yeah? So I started to make decisions based on hope. And because it works, they quickly turned into belief. Yeah? I started to believe the principles. So I'm now making decisions based on belief that are setting off trains of circumstances, but are bringing me fortune. Yeah? Quite a lot of fortune that I don't feel I deserve. So when I have fortune, I don't feel I deserve, what happens? I feel gratitude. Yes? For the first freaking time in years... I felt gratitude. That's something saving my ass. Yeah? It was awesome. So now I'm making more decisions, and the belief turns into a faith. But in the process, I start seeing that sometimes misfortune occurs in my life. Yes? But now I have a pair of glasses that sees the fortune in the misfortune. Where before, with the alcoholic glasses, I saw the misfortune in fortune. Now I'm seeing the fortune in misfortune. And you can see it, how perceptually... Uh, trippy this place is, because a lot of people come in AA and go, you know, this was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And they have like an altar built around it. It has given them excuses for their life and rationalizations that say, this was the worst thing that ever happened to me. But they stay here for a year or two, and it becomes the best thing that ever happened to them. You have to see our role in your own life. Everything is seemingly, everything is appearing to be true or false to you. Yeah? So I started to make these decisions, and then the faith started to occur. And the faith, to me, is the beginning and the basis of emotional sobriety. Yes? Where, in other words, your emotions, when they arise like a tsunami, there's a pause. Yes? There's a pause there. Instead of relying on self, you can, in that pause, there's the reliance on something greater than self. And it's my whole life, if you just change, your whole life will look different if you put a couple of pauses in it, really. The night when I got run over by the car, I got run over twice in one night, which only an alcoholic can happen. <laughs> the guy hit me. He didn't know what he hit, so he backed up over me. 
let's say, and what happened that night was January 30th, and you know the weather around here, in Baldwin, Long Island, I went to a bar at around 11 at night on a Sunday night, and I went in there, and there was only a waitress and a bartender. I knew the bartender, he gave me a quaalude, I ate the quaalude, drank some Grand Monier, went to where I was living. I got home, I started to get irritable, restless, discontent, and my mind was telling me I'm missing a big party. A party just erupted at the bar. It's going to be great. <laughs> so I got in my car around 12.30 that night, drove back there, and I never made it to the bar. I got hit by a drunk driver crossing the street. And you know what? How many people are in the bar? Two people. The waitress and the bartender. So what I was really missing was a Monte Carlo. A Chevy Monte Carlo. That's why I got run over by. So <laughs> this idea for some of us, if, especially if you're one of the consequential drunks, we have to have a pause. We have to have a certain boundary from the emotional feelings that are going to arise and the immediate trigger knee-jerk reaction that the mind wants to follow. And to me, that's emotional sobriety. Yes. So what started to happen for me is when that faith occurred, when the faith occurred for about seven years, I was looking at the problem as obsession with self in recovery. Yes, that's how I was taught. It made sense, and it seemed like my mind was constantly reinvigorating itself, constantly obsessing over something, over and over and over again. Around my seven-year mark, someone introduced me to this idea that you may not be that which you take yourself to be. And as soon as I entertained that, something occurred, and I had a download, just like that CNN news flash, that moment of clarity, I had some downloads, and I got a strong hit, I'm not self. And so when I read the book, it looked totally different than it used to. When I saw the word self, I saw it as a foreign installment. I saw it as a parasite. I saw it as something other than me. And as soon as I could entertain it was other than me, I immediately started to entertain real freedom from it. Real freedom from it. Yes? Not freedom for it, not buying it off, not buying it off by being what you think is good, not buying it off by getting it socialized, not buying it off like this, but freedom from it. Yeah? And now for it's been about 13, I don't know how many years now, I've been entertaining this idea, and it just morphs into more and more. Yes? More and more possibilities are entertained. And the idea of being okay in the system of self-centeredness always has time in it. Yeah? You never get a sense you're okay now, it's I will be okay. Yeah? It's always put off, isn't it? Let me have my unokayness. I will be okay later. Yeah? How about the sense of being okay now? It says it in our book. There's radical solutions in recovery. They describe them in the book. That you will cease fighting everyone and anything. That the problem will not exist for you. And like I said last night, the only way I can have the problem not exist for me for a long, long stretch of time is if it doesn't exist as me. And that's what happens. Selfing is a verb. The mental process in this head is verbing the idea of being a noun. Yes? It's telling you, it's implying to you, it's referring to you that you're this. Yes? When you become this, what we are all that, we can't entertain. We can only think that maybe I can have an experience of that as this. Yeah? What happens if you're not this, you're that. And then that's that. <laughs> and maybe you won't be able to handle it, that's that for that. But then the length will happen. Yes? The download keeps occurring. I'm telling you, it's, an, it's a never-ending reservoir. Yeah? 
the idea of enjoying peace of mind isn't that peace is a commodity. It's, a nat- it's an aspect of the nature of mind, peace. The only nature of mind we are used to is agitation, yes? Agitation is the mind obsessing over self. It can't even, obviously, we know, right? You, most of us are sitting here in this room, and there's really no threat in this room, except being bored to death, or you may not like me. But you may not be seemingly here, and you may be totally flipping out right now, based on your mind's preoccupation with thoughts about what's not happening. Yeah? And it's very difficult to have an immunity to what's not happening. <laughs> it's just realizing it's not happening is the immunity. Yeah? We're trying to get an immunity for what's not happening. But why we're seeking for an immunity, we're making it seem fucking real. The real immunity to what's not happening is it's not happening. Thoughts about it are happening, but not what you're thinking about. What you're thinking about is not happening. And it's not even you thinking about it. The system that's thinking about next week, yes, Next week is not happening. What's happening is the thinking. If you can entertain the thinking is not your thinking, yes, you will have an immunity to it. I use this example in San Fran all the time. Let's say there's a, uh, there's a room back here, and there's a woman I like to know biblically back there. Yeah? I like to go out with her. And, and the idea of going out with her has a lot of meaning. She's going to save me. Yes. So here I am sitting here, and I'm supposed to be participating, but my interest and attention is trying to listen, like with x-ray ears, to what she says. Because I'm thinking she's going to be talking about me, obviously, yeah? And I'm hoping that she'll say, hey, I like that guy, Paul. So that, you know, I can go, oh, that's my in, I'll go and ask her out now. Because I don't want to be rejected, no fucking way. But here I am, sitting there, waiting to hear, waiting to hear, and everyone's going, hey, Paul, you're supposed to be doing this talk. Uh, And I'm in agreement, I'd really like to be here. But my interest and attention is here, because that's much more important than here to me. This woman here, over there, is much more important than what's happening here. Yeah? And so then someone comes and throws a book on the table, How to Lose Interest in Conversations in Another Room. I page through it. Yeah, yeah, very helpful tips, but I can't help myself. I want to hear what she has to say. Finally, finally she says... Hey, I really like that guy, Matt, and my name is Paul. Yeah? As soon as I hear the conversation is about Matt, what happens? I lose interest, yes? Immediately. I don't have to take a workshop about losing interest, yes? I don't have to pray, please remove my interest from this woman. I don't have to do anything, because my interest and attention, as soon as there's a realization it's not about me, it moves. That's exactly what happens. If the thought system is seen not to be about you, your interest and attention will not enliven that screen. Yes? It will not make it technicolor. It will not have Panavision in it. Panavision is past and future. Yes? This will mean all of that, and if it doesn't happen, it means all of that, and it once meant all of this. Yeah? If that, if, if it's not about you, the obsession with self, with self will diminish. Because the only thing that's fueling the obsession, it doesn't have any fuel of its own. It's your interest and attention. You think what you're thinking about is about you. You would, you would 
If you had someone else's little narrative going on in your head, you would be sick and tired of it in like two minutes. Like a minute. You'd want to change the channel. Yet you've been hearing the same station for 40 years, 30 years. What's the difference? It's the same blah, 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 blah. But it's about you up here. Yeah? And it's my blah, 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 blah. It's the mind that's the bondage. That's the glue that bonds you to the idea of being a self. And how is all your ideas of life in relation to being a self presented in your thought system? Yes? We're relying on this to be our navigator, to be our counsel, to be our judge, to be our this, to be our this, and to be us, actually. Yeah? The bonding agent is that. It's the thought system. And its nature doesn't have the ability to bond, but your believing it's about you bonds you to it. A thought, let's say a thought, you have a thousand thoughts a day. They say you have 70,000 thoughts a day, which is unbelievable. Most of the mind's sifting out most of it, but you still have a lot going by the screen, yeah? Now, if you weigh each thought, let's say a thought weighed an ounce, just let's say, yeah? Each thought weighed an ounce. So every day you have a thousand thoughts going over your head. And so basically every day you'd be traveling with a thousand ounces. Yeah? I don't know how much that would make. And if you've been traveling for a long time, almost all the time you think you can remember with the thousand ounces, you wouldn't even notice how heavy it was. Because you're used to it, yeah? You're walking around, thousand ounces. Yeah, yeah, you'd get up hills and like that. You have no idea what, how great it would be if that thousand ounces was taken off. Now, here's a thought. Now, if you add the word like this, let's say money up here, Sex up here. Yeah? Uh, career up here. Look at money, sex, career. Everyone looks at those three words that initiate some meaning in you. Yeah? If you don't have any money, probably maybe a lot of meaning will come up. Yeah? Now, weigh it. Money, sex, career. Okay. Now, put one word in front of it and change the weight. My money. <laughs> I mean, you're really concerned about my money, aren't you? <laughs> I'm con- no, not my money. But you, know, you may be concerned about my money. Sex, definitely. My sex. Come on. The difference of weight. You've written 20 novels about my sex. Yeah? Sex, sex. My sex. Let me tell you about my sex. Career. Oh, come on. Jesus Christ. You see the weight distribution? You don't see it? The weight distribution is unbelievable. Your mind is giving so much meaning, and if you want to equate meaning to weight, you're carrying so much weight around every day by attending to the thought system as yours and about you. And I'm telling you, it's a giant bag you're carrying with rocks, and you know what? (laughs) Deep down in you, you want relief. And I'll tell you, no matter what comes by you, if it doesn't really work, you're not going to be satisfied with it. You want some real relief. And to me, the real relief is to travel lighter. Yeah? If, if the mind... See, you can have a thousand thoughts, but there's only one mind. Yeah? When thousands of thoughts are happening, if it's taken to be you're the, as you're the thinker of it, so there's one you with the thousand thoughts. Yes? Just like, let's say, problems. You have 40 problems. But there's one you that has the 40 problems. Do you want to spend a lot of time working on the problems? Why not go back to the you that believes has the problems? Because if the you is the activity of seemingly making something true or false, 
I would think a lot of problems are made up by how you see them, yes? So I wouldn't spend so much time dealing with the problems, but let's say if your house is on fire, get a pail of water, yes? But when the house is not on fire, let's see if you can entertain what's setting the fires or entertain the fireless state, yeah? Let's just see. You may want to find out, because instead of dealing with all the thoughts as thoughts, if I deal with the one thought called, I'm the thinker of the thoughts, there's where the relief lies. If I'm not the thinker of it, it affects every thought that's seen by, quote-unquote, me. Every thought will weigh differently, because the biggest weight isn't the thought, it's the mind. It's me as the thinker. Yes? It's so freaking beautiful. And the thing is, you'll know it. You'll know that tree is, is on the money by the fruit. You'll travel lighter. Yes? The proof will be in the pudding. It's so obvious. It's like looking at a reflection in a pond, and what you call yourself will be seen instantaneously. Yes, that's Paul. There's usually not a huge doubt about it, is it? If you've seen your face in a mirror enough, when you look at a pond on a still day, it's not like, oh, who is that? Let me see. Oh, did I ever meet them? No, it would be an instant recognition. The thing is, the, you may not, your head may not know that you're traveling lighter, but the whole system will know it's traveling lighter. Yeah? Jeez. So, for me, the whole act of identifying is my, yes? My. Thoughts are not seen as thoughts, they're seen as my thoughts. Body is not seen as body, it's seen as my body. Even when the thought has the sound of what you call your voice, that is an incredible leap to call the vocal sounds of this body your voice. Unless you're identified as the body, as you, yes? If you weren't identified as the body, as you, then the sound that he issues from here wouldn't be held as your voice. And though your voice really, uh, really gives a big hook to the thoughts, doesn't it? It sounds like it's you, what you call you, talking, isn't it? Who is it talking to, by the way? Have you ever had it when it's having a discussion with someone? Who is that someone it's discussing? Who is that someone that you're standing outside the 7-Eleven and you haven't drank in eight months? Who is that someone the thoughts are trying to convince to go buy a bottle? If it was you that wanted the bottle, then you would just walk right in. Why is there like a debate? Why is there... The thought system takes, knows that there's another quote-unquote you. It does. It feels its presence. And so at, when push comes to shove, it will, re, it will re, go back to trying to convince it. Yes? Because it's talking to somebody, is it? I mean, when you're having like an argument up there, who's arguing? Did you ever hear about blackouts? Did I do the blackouts here? <laughs> I like this one. You may not agree with it, but dig it, man. Go with it. It's fun. You know, anyone have blackouts? Probably not. <laughs> blackouts. When you had a blackout, it could last 13 hours, longer, maybe a couple hours, yes? But there's some time when seemingly you come to, and its story about those 14 hours or 20 hours is that you blacked out. You don't have any memory of it, yes? But somebody or something was representing you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, really. When someone, 
I was buying plane tickets. Actually, I was more successful in a blackout than I was when I was, when I was this tall. This tall had a lot of consequences. I went out with really nice women in blackouts. And someone who really intimately knew me wouldn't know when the blackout occurred. I would be in mid-sentence, and they assumed it was me. So why my take on it is, what I think is the mental process has a Paul, or a Mary, or a Sue, that it is producing, and it's that feeling of being you, yes, that's playing, and sometimes you take enough of some substance where it disrupts that system. And the Paul that's being produced stops, yeah? But it has an incredible fail-safe mechanism. Another Paul arises up immediately, and that Paul thinks it's Paul. It thinks it's the historical Paul. It has all the data and information and memories as the other one does. And no one who knew Paul, the other Paul, would see that there's any other Paul there. And it's almost like a seamless takeover, yes? And then for 13 hours, that Paul is being Paul. That's the fine tickets doing this. And then its lifespan is very short because the predominant Paul seems to come back. Now, how, what is the predominant Paul going to do if, that, if there was another Paul, there can't be any Paul? Yeah? If its whole idea of being Paul is that there's a single, one Paul, an independent, separate entity called Paul, if there was another Paul for 14 hours, then it means there's no Paul. Yeah? How could there be two? If their whole story is there's only one. So it rises up. So how is it going to cover its tracks, its absence for 14 hours? It has a called a blackout. It doesn't remember what was happening because it wasn't happening to that Paul. The other Paul was what it was happening to. You see? And then the other Paul is forgotten. And now the, the quote-unquote, how can you even think it's the normal Paul? How, there could have been 30 Pauls that have taken over you. Yeah? How many times have you been in a blackout that you need, didn't even know you were in a blackout? How many times has some other Paul showed up? It's a mental process. There, it is not solid. Its solidity comes from being identified as the body. That's the only basis of foundation it has. It's just a mental idea that's using the body to anchor itself as a reality. And we've fallen under its trance, and we've forgotten our nature, which is, let's say, spirit, and we've taken ourselves to be a material thing. Yeah. And now we're totally concerned about what happens to this. And I'll tell you, as we said yesterday, this thinking system called self-centeredness pictures you and me as a body. When you think about you, you think about you as a body, Yes. That is what that system of thought is relying on. It's relying on the idea of being a body, a self, a single unit. That's the whole center of the system. Why do you, if you're suffering from the effects of the system, why go and try to deal with the effects? Why not go to the hub? Yeah? If the spokes are driving you crazy, if you take out one spoke, there's 40 other spokes. It's the hub. I would say the center of the system is called self-centeredness. Yeah? That's the center. If I'm not the center of the system, the influence of the system diminishes. Yeah. It's such a beautiful invitation because it's based on truth. You are not that. You are not an individual entity. Yes? You are what's seeing out of this head. You're not the seer. You are the seer, but not as a body. Have you? I had a, when I was young, I had an Uncle Fred who I really liked. And I remember I was nine years old, he passed away. 
And my mother took me to the wake. And in the wake back where I lived, you know, Catholic wake, they have an open casket. And they walked me around, they walked me in front of the casket, and I looked in to look at Uncle Fred for the last time. You know, my mother brought me up. And I had this distinct hit when I looked at his body. That is an Uncle Fred. It just was totally, no thinking about it. It was just a realization. That ain't Uncle Fred. That's a body. And I, after hindsight, as I got older, I realized I was seeing Uncle Fred as a body because I was seeing Paul as a body. Yes? So I was given this meaning to that meaning. But when the animating principle had left that body, it was obviously not Uncle Fred. Uncle Fred never saw a damn thing. They're seeing. Yes? They're spirit seeing. They're spirit hearing. They're spirit feeling. They're spirit tasting. It's the mental process that tries to claim the seeing, the hearing, and feeling, and places this as the seer. And how well mind, a system of thought and interpretation, is obsessed with life as this. And this is a little bit of a miscalculation, and it's producing a lot of irritability, restlessness, and discontent. We're an extreme level of that called an alcoholic, so we seek relief like other people may not. We need a lot of relief, and unfortunately we're addicted to what we want relief so, our first solution to the problem begets a huge problem. Yeah? And so, every managing produces another effect of the, in, in, the innate problem, which is your managing. Yeah? So, every time I try to manage myself out of a dilemma, it produces another dilemma. Yeah? So, the problem can't get out of the problem. So, there's a surrender. When you truly get it, that there's nothing in a one level of doing. There's a collapse of the system, and some your antenna that's always picking up K-Paul, yeah, K-Paul 24/7, now moves and picks up some new information, yeah. And so maybe the possibility that you are inherently okay gets entertained instead of I will be okay. Yes. Maybe that higher power will be always available at all times with no requirement necessary to meet it instead of having a God that is a subservient God to you as God. And so your knowing God is based on you knowing it, not it knowing you. Yeah? Because if God is knowing you, which I believe that's the case, it's 24-7. It never blinks. It doesn't take a break. If you're knowing God, it's going to be very infrequent based on what you believe you did or didn't do. Yeah? And that's playing God. And we're suffering the consequences of the mind having total domination over the whole system. We're relying on something that's unreliable. Aren't you tired of the effects of it? Even when you get sober. Just because the, the extreme amount of pain isn't happening so much. It's like when I, got, when I was young, I wanted to be a marine biologist or something. Or got an ocean, oceanographer. And after a few years of active alcoholism, my idea of success was not to be arrested. You know what I mean? It went from marine biology to not being popped. You know, it's fucking incredible how low we can go. Like we say in, in San Francisco, your bottom is when you can't, you can't lower your standards fast enough. <laughs> life, catches, life catches you with the pants down finally. Because we're like cockroaches. I mean, I hit bottoms and I just moved in. I put curtains on them, and I invite you over. And I'd be evicted from that bottom to another bottom. And I didn't know, I didn't believe I had a threshold where it would end. I really didn't. 
it was see, it was it seemed like I was capable of putting up with almost anything. Yeah, it's incredible. Why? Because there was no ability to entertain. I could be free of it. I was taking myself to be that, and I knew I felt there was no way out. So let's just get high, you know. And I'll get caught, and they'll keep me penned up or something, and then as soon as they let me out, I'll get high again. And then I'll get caught, and one day I'll pass away. And I mean, when I shot dope, I was trying to do big shots at the end all the time. I was hoping I'd not come out, you know. But if a parasite has you, it's probably going to prolong your life for quite a while. It is, really, yeah? Because it's the only host it has. It doesn't want to lose you. It's the way it has a life, basically, by having yours. So, as you know, most alcoholics don't get off the hook easily. They get limps and abscesses, missing teeth, and they just keep on keeping on, year after year after year. I can't believe it. I lived in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, and since I moved there 20-something years ago, I see the same street people for 24 years. They're not dead. They drink every day. (laughs) It's just freaking unbelievable. I mean, you couldn't kill them. You could run them over with a tank and they would have died. They would somehow get to the clinic and get better and then go out and have a bottle. <laughs> Jeez, the parasite does not want to let go of the host. Yeah, it's got your li- it wants life. It doesn't have one of its own, so it takes yours. How does it feel to be under that tyranny? How does it feel to be enslaved to that? It's never going to be bought off, as you know. It's just not. It, it's a, it gives you shopping lists every day. It gives you five-year plans to be happy. It gives you tons of things to do. And you follow it, some of them religiously, and it never produces the goods. Yeah. So I don't know. I, somehow it occurred that I was, that was given up, and by the fruits I know the tree. And I know the problem by the solution. The solution is my life is filled when the absence of self is here. Yeah? When I'm present as this, that thing I so sorely want is absent. I've got to find replacements for it because I can't seem to find it. Yeah, but when this, when it, in self-forgetting I forget about being a self, then what I was looking for seems to be obviously available. But then when I claim it, it becomes unobvious again. Yes, and then okay, then you know grace occurs, and then it's obvious, and then my mind rises up again and claims it. Have you ever had an epiphany? Anyone an epiphany here? You know what we're talking about? Where you have a one of those blissful spiritual experiences, if you want to call it, or an event or something. So, have you ever known it was coming? Did you ever make a reservation for it? <laughs> yeah. Did you really? Did you? I, you know, call ahead, get the Kenny G music pumped in, and <laughs> the candles and stuff. Yeah. It sort of just interrupts, you know, the linear story of being you. Yeah. But what happens when it ends, usually, it usually coincides with a thought, a, a couple of thoughts arising, which is, I've had this incredible epiphany, yeah? That's the selfing claiming its own absence and making it into an experience for it, you see? The system will keep morphing and keep claiming and keep readjusting itself to keep being you. Yeah? It's only in seeing it, it's only in seeing it that the freedom really hits. Yeah, if you keep seeing from it, all the freedom is going to come and go, all based on you or someone else. Yeah, maybe you feel freedom when you see a teacher, but this teacher comes once a year. <laughs> That's not worth it. Eh? 
So this is the epiphany really was the absence of you. Yeah? Yet the drive to be there, to have it and get it, is what causes it to be made into an experience. But truly, it's the absence of you which is the richness of your life. Yeah? Not the absence of someone else in your life, but the absence of you is the presence of spirit. Yeah? When the mind isn't so totally preoccupied as by being this, it can pick up that. Yeah? The difference, what I'm attempting to share there, when it picks up that, the system will claim it as an experience which isn't that. Yes? And so the system is tricky because it claims everything. So when you have a, an event or one of those spiritual awakenings, it will rise up and claim it and say, oh, I had the spiritual awakening. Yeah? Which causes the spiritual awakening to be infrequent. It maybe only come once in your life. You put it on a mantle and maybe you worship and go, wow. But then the mind uses it to compare to all the moments that don't seem like that moment. And now you have another form of dissatisfaction. Yeah? But if someone can share with you how it appears and how it manifests, then you can see it, yes? You can see the selfing, and when you see the selfing, you're not seeing from the selfing. Yeah? And when you see the selfing, a very strong hit comes over you. I must not be that, because there's a seeing of it, yes? And the identification gets weaker and weaker, and an aspect of your mind gets stronger and stronger. And you travel lighter. Yeah? Like in The Course in Miracles, which is a book, uh, I don't want to go into it, but there's a beautiful statement, a lot of them, but this statement I love. It says, you know, we're basically awake, yes, all of us. But what's happening is we're in this dream. We're dreaming this dream. Yes? Dreaming this dream of being an individual and subjective. What's going to happen is you're going to dream yourself out of the dream. Yeah? And as you're dreaming yourself out of this dream, yeah, the dream's going to get happier. What a beautiful statement, yeah? So, as I dream myself out of this dream, which is what we're doing, we're here dreaming ourselves out of the dream. No matter what you're thinking, this dream's going to end in time, yeah? So we're in the process of dreaming ourselves out of the dream. But the, the offering here is that the dream will get happier, yeah? This is the traveling writer, with the sense that I'm inherently awake. I'm not a body that's unconscious, I'm awakeness, yeah? So, you want to take, sorry, someone just walked in and we're going to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on, we're, we're going to pass the basket. All right, all right. And uh, keep in mind that this isn't just a regular put a dollar in a basket. We're trying to collect some money for Paul because he traveled here from California. Long